Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. In this episode, we hear from journalist Shane Bauer, who was held with two colleagues in an Iranian prison for more than two years, and experience the three wrote about in their 2014 memoir, A Sliver of Light. We also hear from Robert King, who served 29 of his 32-year sentence at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in solitary confinement. His book, From the Bottom of the Heap, the Autobiography of a Black Panther, was published in 2008. The next thing we're going to do, we're going to see a film of about 10-minute film, something like that. And maybe James can give us a couple of minutes of introduction, and then Shane will talk to you after the film is over. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, and hi, Shane, on the line from California. <laughs> My name's James West. I'm a journalist and videographer with Mother Jones magazine. Uh, I'm based here in New York. It was my great pleasure and privilege to work with uh, Shane Bauer on the film, the short film that you're about to see called No Way Out. I think it's fair to say that uh, both Shane nor I had any idea what this film might become when we met in a cafe in Oakland and uh, embarked on a uh, what was meant to be an eight-hour road trip. It ended up kind of being several more than that. On our way to Pelican Bay Prison near the border of California and Oregon, set amongst glorious redwood forest along the uh, Pacific coastline there, this completely incongruous place. It's the superest of all the supermaxes up there, set nestled into this pristine beautiful part of the world where sea lions bark into the wind and the the Pacific Ocean laps. We didn't know what it was going to be like. Shane Bauer, who uh, joins us here, uh, is a fantastic award-winning investigative journalist who was taken hostage with his friend Josh Vitara and his now wife Sarah Shord in um, Iran and was held there in solitary confinement. I'll, I'll let Shane tell the bulk of the detail of that story upon his release, decided quite gallantly, I think, to begin investigating the situation here in America when it came to solitary confinement. And some of the somewhat disturbing parallels between what he endured there in Iran and what happens here in America, in particular, Californian prisons. And those parallels will speak for themselves, I think, when when you see uh, what we put together. All we did know as we were driving up was that we had extraordinary access to Pelican Bay as a filmmaker and journalist myself. That was something that I didn't want to question as we were entering in there. And I had my small little camera there and was like, don't ask any questions, just film. And we spent a really amazing day inside this prison with unfettered access almost to various wards, not quite unfettered access as you'll see. And what it came down for me, having looked at all of the material that we got and then speaking and working with Shane afterwards was this is really a story about Shane's journey back into prison after several months after his release, first time being back behind bars. And that's what really captured me and I think what really propelled us into the film that you're about to see. So this is no way out.
it's going to be like, to be honest, I'm curious, you know, what it's going to be like to step in. I haven't been in a prison since, you know, since I was released in Iran, and not just any prison, we're going to be walking into Pelican Bay. My name is Shane Bauer. In 2009, I was captured on the Iran-Iraq border with Josh Patal and Sarah George. We never knew when or if we would get out. I spent four months in solitary confinement. I didn't expect to find the same or worse back home in California. Solitary confinement was the worst experience of all of our lives. Cameron's ready. Pelican Bay Prison is right behind these trees over there. I have this feeling of weight, of heaviness. I'm nervous. We're about to pull on the plane right now to Pelican Bay State Prison. I know I'm going to see people who have been living in solitary for a very long time. Just always be on your toes. Always be on your toes. Okay. My guides today are Lieutenant Chris Acosta and the institutional gang investigator, David Barnabert. Pelican Bay, one of the first supermaxes in the country, is infamous for its security housing unit, or SHU. While some of these inmates are murderers, they aren't put in the SHU for their original crimes. Some have never even broken prison rules. Inmates are held in the SHU indefinitely because the Department of Corrections says they are connected, however tenuously, to prison gang. seven months since I've been inside a prison cell. I thought this was going to be better than it is. The cell is one of eight in a pod. At a little over 11 by 7 feet, smaller than any I've ever inhabited. We're in a uh, shoe cell right now. The inmate is outside. This is where he sleeps. When there's another cellmate that sleeps up there. It's uh, pretty bleak. Without a window in my cell, I wouldn't have had the sound of ravens, the rare breezes, or the drops of rain. Even when the window is closed and they come in winter, uh, it's also suffocating. And just having that light come in, seeing the light move across the cell, you know, and seeing that what I would kind of judge what time of day it was is that why don't they have windows? <laughs> this way it's designed. Both. What? I, I don't. I don't know. I, I, I can't explain that. Uh, they leave it in the cell, and then uh, a food trailer be passed through the cell. They have released the pod. Prisoners have to strip naked, pass their hands through a food slot to be handcuffed, then wait for the door to open. Uh, inmates come out to you know get some uh, some exercise. There's more room to run out here. Prisoners only get an hour in this concrete dog run every day. So they're protected from the rain during the winter, and it's. Uh, Monitor with a video camera by the control booth. In Iran, the open-air cell I exercised in was twice the size of this. Iranian prison is never far from my thoughts. My guides are just as curious about my situation as I am about Pelican Bay. She's a girlfriend, right? Yeah, that's yeah. it? Yeah. Are you still with her? Yeah. Okay. Did they let you guys kiss and all that? Yeah, there's no one out there. No, it's like a, uh, there's a camera. Yeah. So we love to have like, physical contact. Yeah. Physical contact. Yeah. 
At Pelican Bay, decisions about who gets put in the shoe come down to one man, Barterbird. I'm a man just like you are and stare at everyone else in here. I don't want to see somebody else put in shoe the gang member for unjust reasons. He's essentially the judge, jury, and prosecutor in a process called the gang validation. Evidence against inmates can involve something as simple as appearing in the same photo as a gang member. In my review of dozens of inmates' files, California officials frequently cite possession of black literature, left-wing books, and writing about prisoner rights as evidence of gang membership. No actual judge is involved from the gathering of evidence to sentencing. Much of the evidence brought by gang investigators like Barnaberg comes from informants. It's confidential and can't be refuted. They've got multiple different avenues to review the gang material that's being used against them and challenge it. But Barnaberg says he has never seen a successful appeal in his 15 years at Pelican Bay. When journalists are let into the shoe, the only inmates allowed to talk are those who are informing on fellow prisoners. They don't like me asking why. Can we talk to a prisoner who's not quite the um, when we go up to the main but within a shoe. No. We just want to use these guys right here. So why? We just don't. Here you go. So my guys take me out of the shoe to meet Paul Bocanegra. He was in solitary for 12 years. It is punishment. It's, it's meant to... To break a person. He got out by informing on other prisoners, a process called debriefing, which among prisoners can mean death. You know, you're going to be targeted for assault, possibly murder. So that's always in the back of your head. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions, a lot of myths about the debrief policy, and it gets hammered a lot. That debrief document is checked, double-checked against movement rosters, against other information provided by other debriefers, by other sources. But I found that at least one inmate in another California prison was put in the shoe based on evidence from informants that was eventually discovered to be false. Years later, that prisoner remains in the shoe. The other way to get out is to be deemed inactive, a review that only happens every six years. Many less prisoners get out through that avenue than by debriefing. And once you're validated, it's, it's hard because you constantly have people leaving the shoe and giving up information. So it's like a, it's, it's a revolving door. These prisoners are criminals. I was a hostage, but a part of me relates to them. Their desperate words sound like the ones that ricocheted through my own head when I was inside. I think any time in solitary is enough time to break a human being. When I leave the prison, I head to the ocean. There's nothing I've experienced in my life that's worth an abyss is what I think of it. Like, how do you describe an abyss without describing the, the edges of the abyss? And you end up only describing the edges of the abyss. How do you describe something that's, that's um, untimeless? You're in a situation that is um, antithetical to, to what it means to be human, really. Shane, are you there? Yeah, I am. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you in Iran? So I, I spent, after we were captured, I spent, um, the three of us were in solitary confinement for four months. And then I was put in a cell with uh, Josh Patel, but uh, Sarah uh, was kept alone um, for the duration of her time. Uh, 13 months, we were allowed to see her. After the 
see her for about an hour a day. But aside from that, she was alone. I'd like to read something that I put in the end of the article. Um, it was uh, part of a journal that I had uh, taken out. It was like the only piece of journal that had come out. And actually, in the process of doing this investigation, at the end of it, I, I had this journal kind of tucked away. And I never actually looked at it. And when I did, I saw that I kind of briefly had um, touched on the experience of solitary confinement. And, you know, it's kind of a uh, off-the-cuff writing about it. And I, I said, um, the more one is utterly alone, the more the mind comes to reflect the shell. It becomes blank static. Solitary confinement is not some sort of cathartic horror of blazing nerves and shearing skin and heads smashing blindly into walls and screaming. Those moments come. They're not the essence of solitary. There are events that penetrate the essence. There are stones tossed into an abyss. They're not the abyss itself. Solitary confinement is a living death. Death because it is the removal of nearly everything that characterizes humanness. Living because within it you are still you. Life still turn out as real death. Time is narrated as in sleep. I think, you know, what I was really trying to get at and in writing about this and now working on a book about our experience with Sharon Josh, it's kind of been, you know, really a challenge of how to get at that thing, that essence, which is essentially empty. And when I, whenever I'm asked to kind of say, what was it like? I kind of come up against a blank wall. And I think it's really a reflection of the experience I went through where, you know, I'm sitting in a cell alone. I have a little window and a patch of sky and I'm kind of, you know, like the previous speaker said, I'm watching myself. And not only am I watching myself, but I'm watching myself slip away from me. As a month passed, I became less able to think. I just thought less. I kind of was overtaken with um, lethargy and essentially spending one day after the other looking at a wall. And we kind of constantly have a dialogue going in our heads, but what I came to realize is that dialogue is dependent on real dialogue with other human beings, and it's kind of, in a way, a, a kind of copy of that. And, you know, as I stopped having dialogue with other human beings, that dialogue slowed, and I was in a situation where it is essentially completely and utterly predictable, and I think as human beings, we rely on unpredictability. Everything that we do almost has um, consequences that we can't predict. And this is the only situation that I have ever been in where that does not exist. Everything I do, you know, I have my orange and I toss it up in the air and catch it. And there's really very little that can happen unless I'm somehow interacting with the outside world, banging on my door and trying to actually get reaction, which I did a lot, um, kind of uncontrollably at times. Aside from that, there's no surprises. There's nothing outside of you. And I think, as the previous speaker said, it's a situation of being isolated, extremely unique. And I think the reason is that you're just stuck with yourself. And when you're stuck with yourself, you are dealing with your unique life experience and your own demons, you know, that we all have. And it's at times becomes a battle between you and those demons. And there's really no way to conquer them. You know, there's no way to kind of 
put anything into practice. You just kind of sit with things and they never move. Can you compare the the experience that you had in Iran with what you imagined the experience, particularly for example, in terms of warders? I mean, what was striking to me about the warders in the film was their bureaucratic unflappability. What about the the warders in Iran? What struck me in Bay was the similarity in in a sense that these people I think are in a very small world in one sense where they um, kind of I think don't have perspective outside it and things like where the the guard said um, one of my guys asked if if I could kiss uh, Sarah and said you can't be that that to me is uh, was a very striking example of his kind of isolated world I mean. When he said that, my first thought was I can think of a million things to teach that. Um, so on the one, one hand, there's this kind of extreme isolation of there. And on the other hand, they're in this world every day where they are dealing with people who are in solitary, but they have no like, really idea what that means. So it's this kind of normalized situation. They see these people, you know, they go to their cells sometimes, they walk past them. And they see with their own eyes. And I think in seeing that, they feel that they understand what it means. And they do not. A more pointed way of asking questions, would you rather spend a half year in solitary in Iran or in Pelican Bay? I kind of felt with an article that, you know, it's very difficult to kind of compare the details. Um, you know, in, in, in one sense, um, I couldn't write letters. You know, the guys at Pelican Bay can write letters. I... Uh, had a window. They had to tell us they don't have a window. My cell was bigger than theirs is. They're not allowed to make phone calls. I made three phone calls in my 26 months. When you kind of tally these things up, it's really difficult to kind of compare. But I think the fundamental difference is the amount of time that these guys are spending in solitary confinement. I spent four months, the longest that I know of anybody in Iran. And I was in an isolation ward. It was essentially a ward for political prisoners where everybody was isolated, either alone or with a cellmate. And, you know, in the context of cellmate, it's still isolated from the rest of the prison and the rest of the world. But um, the longest I know of anybody in that situation is two years, which is an extremely long amount of time in solitary confinement. But in California, in the security housing unit, there's 89 people that have been there for 20 years or more. There's actually one guy who's been in solitary confinement for 42 years that I think is the fundamental difference, and it's unimaginable for me, really, even having a glimpse of that experience. Thank you for that film and for your reporting. It's really quite amazing. Thank you. Robert Hillary King is known to some of you as one of the Angola Three. These are three prisoners from Angola prison in Louisiana who've collectively spent coming on a century in solitary. Robert Hillary King himself spent 28 years in solitary for a crime for which he was subsequently exonerated. My name is Robert H. King, and I was released from Louisiana State Prison after 31 years and 29 in solitary confinement. A long time ago, there were some folks who thought that that prisons were capable of rehabilitating. They had the belief that if, um, if you went to prison or if you was in prison and if you were there for a certain period of time, that this could be one transforming 
experience. They came up with the idea of what we, we've been talking about today, solitary confinement. They felt that total or near total deprivation could be a transforming mechanism that can shock a person out of his or her outlandish behavior into caught one away or put one in prison. Six months, they felt, was ample enough time for this to happen. And as some of you know, it was this group called themselves the Pilgrims who created this form of solitary confinement. Their intent was noble, but the consequences were terrible. So the point is, a person can evolve in prison or devolve, but it is self-will. It is not anything that any prison I've been in, it does that facilitates or helped us facilitate any type of rehabilitation. Having said that, I did not define solitary confinement. In fact, the court did. Their determination or its determination is anytime you are housed in a cell for 23 hours a day, seven days a week, it constituted solitary confinement. A court has yet to determine whether or not solitary confinement per se is unconstitutional. But what a code has done in a case that we have, uh, the code has said that the amount of time that you spend in solitary confinement is what determine whether or not, whether that was an Eighth Amendment violation, whether or not it's cruel and unusual punishment. But you know, <laughs> you've heard testimony today and I'm a witness to it. Uh, one day in solitary confinement can be like a thousand for another individual. As I pointed out, I was given a 35-year sentence, arrested for an armed robbery. The evidence against me was really flimsy. They offered me a certain amount of time in which I refused to take. I refused to accept it because I had already had a previous record. At the time, I was 17 and a half, 18 maybe, for fear of getting 30 years at the time. Of course, since that time, it had multiplied. It had replicated about three times. 99 years is the maximum for a sentence. And any of you got a previous record in Louisiana, you get 198. They call that double billing. But at this particular time, it was 30 years. And I was 17 years old. Can you imagine being 17 years old and someone tell you you're going to get 30 years if you didn't plead guilty to a robbery that you didn't commit? And then there's a proof positive on a flat where I was on a tier with, we call it tiers, but it was a I was on a tier with a, a fella who had, they had offered 10 years and he refused to take the 10 years and he ended up being the first to get the 30 years for this armed robbery. And looking at this individual here, I was frightened to death. Like I said, I wasn't 20 years old. They wanted me to plead guilty this time to 15 years. Uh, I was not politically aware, or politically inclined, but I understood racism and discrimination. I understood that while I couldn't articulate it, I understood that there was a discrepancy that was going on in society that just was not true. But I also understood this, that people were defining me and saying things about me and writing a history about me and my people and my family that was not me at all. So I had begun to kind of see that there was something drastically wrong. And I think it has to, you know, sometimes you just have to take a, have to take a stand. And I elected not to accept their 15 years. They became angry and I went to trial and they found me guilty. A verdict of 10 to 2, despite the fact that the, the so-called identification of the perpetrator didn't remotely resemble me. 
they found me guilty and gave me 35 years at hall labor. They got angry with me and gave me 35 years, but then it was time for me to get angry. I began to see, put things in perspective then. Uh, this was early 70s. I began to put things in perspective and I began to make the connection. Even though the 13th Amendment allegedly abolished slavery, now I'm looking at it, now don't get me wrong, hey, I might have some radical ideas. My idea is probably different from yours because you haven't been in a position in which I was in. So my thoughts might be radical. They might even be extreme to some degree. So forgive me a little bit. I decided that we still lived in slavery. I decided that the 13th Amendment hadn't abolished slavery, that it was just rhetoric. The word don't even say slavery was abolished. It goes on to say it makes an exception. You know, slavery and involuntary servitude shall exist on these shows except, uh, you know, one who has been duly convicted of a crime. What does that mean? It means this, that if you get duly convicted of a crime, whether you are guilty or not, then you become a legal slave. And this is where I began to make, you know, these connections. It was in a cell. In a cell, by the way, was six by nine by 12. In the space, you've heard how people say you could walk a certain length of a pace and you have to turn around, you could stretch both arms and it, you know, hit the wall. In Angola prison, if you had 40 years at the time that I was arrested, you did most all of that time. But if you got a life sentence in Angola, in which, and I'll eventually, some of you probably know about my case, and you probably know that they could not keep me in prison. I was going to eventually discharge on this other sentence. They ended up putting another charge on me, got inmate to say that I had participated, despite the fact that the officer on at the time was on. He did not see me do anything. He saw this other inmate, stabbed another inmate to death in a self-defense gesture. But they got someone to say that I had participated in it. And as a result of that, they also charged me. Matter of fact, they charged 13 people on the, on the flat. With, with, with a murder that they know only one person had committed. When they eventually sent me to Angola from the New Orleans Parish Prison, oh, and by the way, I, when I say I got mad, I got angry, I, I want you to know I, I did get angry. I got mad. I, I began to see myself as being treated like a slave, and the only right that a slave had was the right to rebel. And I took advantage of that. I saw myself as being treated like a slave, not that I was a slave, but I was being treated like a slave. And the only right that I had was to rebel. And I did. I escaped. I escaped. And I ended up getting eight years for what they call, quote, aggravated escape. I got out of prison. That was my way of fighting back. I was out there a piece of time. Someone saw me and dropped the nickel on me. That's what we called it. Oh, by the way, the telephone way back then, that's all it cost, a nickel. <laughs> when he dropped this nickel on me, they found me and camped to where I was. They charged me with aggravated escape, and they ended up giving me eight years. I ended up with 43 years. And I must admit, but every chance I got, I tried to aggravate them. Every chance I got. The only reason why I didn't aggravate them was because they had me in a position where I couldn't aggravate them. But I tried. But then when I couldn't aggravate them by getting out of prison, I did some other things. I began to study the history of uh, of America. Its relationship with people of all colors, all walks of life, all ethnicity. You know, people ask me, how did you survive in prison? 
I can say it was as a result of my becoming politically aware. I don't know what else it was that allowed me to not succumb, but I did not succumb. I written a book called From the Bottom of the Heap. What I had in mind was this, that when you're at the bottom, you know, there are so many layers that you got to push through in order to be heard. I say, well, I'm at the bottom of this heap and I got to scream real loud, you know, in order to be heard. And just writing a book wasn't the only way that I screamed. I was, they had decided and decreed that I would be held in solitary confinement or in CCR for the remainder of my period of time. I say, well, okay. I made the decree and it was psychological. It wasn't physical because I'm telling you, I'm not trying to minimize prison. Don't get me wrong. Prison is horrible. It's terrible. It kills. It dehumanizes. It debilitates. But my concept and my thought was, okay, I'm in prison. But you know what? Prison isn't in me. My political consciousness and my awareness would not allow prison to exist in me. Subsequently, got found guilty for allegedly participating in the death of this inmate. And they gave me a life sentence. If you got a life sentence in Angola, you got a life sentence without the possibility of parole, probation, or suspension of sentence, unless an intervening appellate court come into the picture. And when they come into the picture, you have to color your claim with innocence. And then there's the law that prevents you from even going afterward because there's a procedure law that prevents people from exercising or even invoking the innocent factor, even if 20 years later, evidence is uncovered that you are actually innocent. People, if they are in prison, they have a life sentence. They can do a life sentence in solitary confinement. And it was decreed that I would do all of my time which was life in 43 in solitary confinement, you know. But uh, however, you know, that was the thought of the warden. He had said, well, King, we definitely got a grave for you. But this would accentuate uh, my point that you're, you're, you're a legal slave because if you go to Angola and if you die, your folks, even if they won't want to claim your body, the state do not have to give it to them. You belong to us and we're going to bury you here. So this is, you know, proof positive that slavery exists. What I want to do, what I would like to do, we have to kind of redefine prison. I think once we redefine prison, the method and our approach to dealing with it become much greater. Don't get me wrong. I, let me tell you, I know there are people, I can't tell people how to struggle or what to struggle or which way to struggle, what method to use. All I in encourage people to do is throw pebbles in a pond because I am a firm believer in, in the principle of cause and effect. If you throw a pebble in a pond, you're going to get a ripple. Just think collectively, all the people combined throwing pebbles in a pond, just think not just a ripple you're going to create, but you're going to create a wavelength. And the people, in my opinion, they are the one. That's where the power, the, it was people who decreed this. It, you know, it wasn't until doing Chattel. And this is why we have to refocus our attention. You know, I know I'm kind of maybe out there, some of you might say, but look at the logic. Look at the, check the logic out. It, was un, it wasn't until, it was thought at one time, you know, that slavery was moral. And the slave owners that, that, that implemented this peculiar institution thought it was moral as far as they were concerned. But 
It wasn't until a people as a whole, people in America, cross ethnicity, realized that this was something that was repulsive and it was immoral. People had begun to see it as being morally reprehensible. And this is when you put prison in that context, you put it in the context of slavery, then you got a method, you got an approach that you could say, well, you know what, there's some, there's some logic to this. The point is this, I think we have to refocus our attention on prison and how prison, you know, are operated until we take a different approach to what prison is. And don't get me wrong, I, I look, I know there are some people, some of you probably want to say they need to be put away and never get out again. And that even may be true. But there are so many other people and they are making, they're making, they're paving a highway in which they could implement this to any number of people or any segment or half of the population if they really wanted to. Prison is something that we have to look into. I think Dota Yepsia and some other folks, some other famous philosophers say something. If you want to engage a society, want to see how this society is ran, go inside its prison. Because inside its prison, you could determine what type of society you live in. And if you go to the prisons, go to American gulags, go to these prisons, you will get a picture of what the American system is all about in relationship to poor people and other people who have been dispossessed nearly all of their lives throughout generations after generations after generations. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it so very much. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.